0: Welcome to another episode of the Aaron Darko Show. Now today I have the honor of having my very special guest, Mr. Christian Giacobbe.
1: And the pronunciation is good.
0: (laughs) Hey there. Cheers. Cheers. He's the founder of Bali Comedy Club. Yes. Sipping our coconut water here. In case you're wondering why the water seems a bit uh, misty. (laughs) Yes. And what we're talking about today is his story, because he's one of the most famous people in Bali and he's actually hilarious as well. So you're going to have a lot of jokes on this episode. And also like for me, is more curiosity of how he became the founder of Bali Comedy Club and one of the most prolific comedians in all of Asia, not just Southeast Asia. And uh, so, yeah, we're going to have a chat about, you know, where he came from, his story, his backstory, and hopefully you'll get a lot of value out of this episode. So, Chris, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. So, people know you in Bali for doing the comedy. Like, every Friday you do the comedy show, and I've been there a a few times to perform myself. And one of the things that really strikes me about you is that, you are very consistent with your, mm. with your comedy. So we're going to talk about that later, but I just want to get back into like, how, did this all come, how did this all come about? Like, take me back to like, your backstory, if you will. Okay.
1: So when I was 18, I don't know if, if you have them in England. In Italy, in the late 90s, early 2000, we had resorts all over the world just for Italian people. Uh, people will come on this, the whole uh, resort will get filled on the same day, and people will leave on the same day. And my job, and they would never leave the hotel, it's the craziest thing ever. And my job was to make sure they had fun. So during the day, I would make activities and whatnot. And every single night, I would perform in front of 500, 600 people every single night. And I would do musicals, I would do comedy, I would do variety shows, quiz shows, whatever. And I did that uh, for several years. I did that in Africa, I did that in Greece, I did that in Spain as well. Then when I uh, became older, I got sucked in uh, the corporate machine, I became a sales manager, but I kept doing every once in a while some MC gig. And then when I moved to Bali, uh, that is also an interesting story I might tell you later. When I moved to Bali, I didn't know what to do. I had a little bit of cash with me, so I didn't have any pressure. And uh, first I joined Toastmasters. Do you know about yep, Toastmasters? Yep, yep. Yeah. I became the president of Changgu. I opened the club in Ubud. And again, I started doing some, some gigging. And uh, then for the first time, there was no comedy scene in Bali at that time. No comedy scene in English, there is in Bahasa. Then there was this open mic uh, which I went to with some of my friends, it was some of the most terrible nights ever. It was organized super poorly and it never made past the first night. They never did it again. Mm. So my friend said, hey, why don't you take over? And why don't we find uh, a place to do it? Mm. I was like, yeah, why not? And the rest is history became immediately super popular in Canggu. Now we are all over Bali and not only because we did shows also in the Gili Islands, in Lombok, in Jakarta. Uh, just last week, I became the first ever headliner in the history of um, one of the most famous Indonesian national TV-, TV to headline with the set in English. Collaborating with Comedy Central everything is just exploding. So it was was by chance, I didn't really choose it. But once I was on stage, and once I got that that adrenaline rush of the comedy, I couldn't think about anything else. Mm. Because this is the thing, comedy is such a pure form of public speaking because you got immediate feedback. Like there's no bullshit about comedy. Like if you do a speech, if you do let's say a motivational speech, people will listen to you or pretend to listen to you. And then at the end, they'll give you the applause. Whether you suck or did great, they will give you a sympathy applause at least. Mm. And then at the end, you will realize, okay, these people liked it, these people didn't like it. But with comedy, people either laugh or don't laugh. And it's not only that; is it's that every single joke, you start from zero. Cause they might, you might kill it with uh, with one joke and then the following joke,
2: crickets.
1: (laughs) And so it's much more high risk, high reward in a sense. And that's why it's so addictive. Actually yesterday we did a charity event for Bali Street Month. And uh, the venue was in front of a rice field. And uh, one of my comedians didn't do so, so hot, he bumped. And because it was next to the rice field, you could actually hear crickets, which was hilarious. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> it was great.
0: So, okay. So there's a lot there. So you gave us a little backstory, right? For yes. the people that don't know you, right? Most people outside the body don't know who you are, right? So you will. Yet, yet. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the, this is like kind of crazy because like this is before you like go mainstream, like, because I've seen your growth in the last two. Well, how long have I known you? Like almost two years. Yeah, in the, I
1: started Bali Comedy
0: Club not even two years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to go into that, but I want—I like to always start with like the man behind what you do. So take us back to when you were talking about when you started out doing these shows and you were traveling around. There's like five hundred people, six hundred people.
1: Yes, that was a very time consuming and energy consuming job mm-hmm. but was very fun and it's something that uh, many italian kids do it mm-hmm. because you you get paid nothing mm-hmm. I, I used to get paid 300 euros a month something like that but you would go to these paradises and you stay there and then you would spend six months one year and your job was basically having fun and make sure people have fun but you would work from eight in the morning till four in the morning every single day no day off but then you learn a lot of people skill. Mm. And that was a really nice gym for me. Mm. So that's where you learn how to be funny or just how to get along with people? Get along with people. Cause Mm. also this is another misconception. Being funny and being a good comedian have nothing to do with one another. Oh really? Cause, and and this is what happened. Uh, So the way Bali comedy clubs worked and the way I managed to make it grow is by having people coming on stage and doing sets, You of course did a few sets and you, you did great. And I always told you, you have a lot of potential, but this is what happened is because when I came to Bali, I was the only comedian. And as much as I work hard, I cannot have a brand new show every week. That okay. would be insane. So I needed to teach other people. And so after the show, uh, there's two kinds of people that I talked to and and they tell, there are the people that are like, yeah, I don't know, I need to write, I need to prepare. And then there are the cocky ones that are usually the, the alpha male or the alpha female in their group. And they're like, oh yes, but uh, if I go, I want to be the headliner and I want to speak for 20 minutes and I don't want to prepare anything because I'm just funny and those always bump.
0: Because
1: when you're on stage, you need structure. Mm. When you talk to your friends, you don't need to be funny for them to laugh, you need to be entertaining. On stage, being entertaining is not enough. On stage, you need the punchline. That's mm. that's the bottom line.
0: So, how did you get into the comedy stuff? Like, you went from you know doing this job, and then you went to in the corporate world, yeah. and then you then you started doing public speaking. Yes. And then what, what, where did, where was the comedy? Like, were you thinking about doing comedy, or did that just kind of happen?
1: I've been thinking about it for years as well. Uh, But yeah, it just kind of happened naturally, and I'm a very obsessive person, so as soon as I said, okay, comedy, I took it absolutely uh, seriously, so I started studying, I started reading, I started preparing, Um, just to tell you, this is one thing that we do in Bali Comedy Club that is pretty much a nerd of in the world of comedy, every single week we come with completely different material. Chris Rock makes, and he's a legend, he's one of the GOATs. Chris Rock made one special every four years.
0: That is unbelievable. You told me that the there. I was like, what?
1: Yes, <laughs> and then, and there's pros and cons in uh, his uh, approach and my approach. Obviously, I'm yeah. nowhere near, but, because we always watch the comedians during their Netflix special or Comedy Central special, and it's perfect. And the reason why it's perfect is because they told that joke 200 times. But in the situation where I was in, Bali, there's not that many people. We started during the pandemic. So there were not, not going to be tourists. So if you come to one of my shows and you hear jokes, you laugh, so you come back and you hear the same jokes, you're not gonna laugh. And then the third time, you still the then you're not gonna come back anymore. <laughs>
0: yeah, that was one of the most alarming things that you told me when I first went to the comedy show. It's like, you were like, yeah, you do a new set every week. I was like, what the hell? Yeah. Like, is that really what comedians do? And then I found yeah. out what the, what, the, what the comedians do. And I'm like, wait a
1: minute, like, <laughs> it's crazy. In, in the US, I read that uh, a new comedian produces five to seven minutes of tight material per year that's unbelievable and you're doing that every week yeah well it's it's not always tight but (laughs) i do my best okay
0: well you you, it definitely seems tight like because you not only write new material every week but you have to memorize it also
1: yeah it is a full-time job yeah yeah
0: yeah wow so yeah so talk to me about the about where you got to in your journey to find your purpose Because I I know you like to talk about purpose.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I make a lot of fun of Ikigai and purpose and but comedy is my purpose. Mm. It really is. This is what happened just before arriving in Bali. I was uh, in the corporate world. Uh, I was in a very high paying job and uh, I was suicidal. Every morning I would used to live in Milan. Every morning I would take uh, the subway uh, to my office, and I noticed that every day I would get a little bit closer to the yellow line. And one day, I actually stepped on the yellow line. I was like, "Okay, I need to get the fuck out of here." Uh, in the, and that was the period also where I broke up with my wife at the time, and she's lovely. We we are still we talk almost every day. She's amazing. Wow. Uh, but that's what I told her. I told her that I'm not happy with my life. Mm. And so I cannot have be happy with you. I felt like I was drowning and I was like dragging her down with me and I didn't want that. So I let go. That's mm. what happened. And so I found this uh, this job on LinkedIn, which was incredible. So it was this company. I cannot disclose it because I signed an NDA, but it was this company. And basically, they I, did the, I went through four interviews and basically my job was gonna be leading a sales task force where every month I would have to live in a different country uh, to sell products to Five star Hotels. And they told me, okay, you're gonna start in Madrid, then you're gonna do six months in South America and then Pacific Islands. I was like, that's perfect. Uh, but what happened is, and I had one month of like free time before I joined this, this company. So I quit my job, I resigned on, on my lease. Um, and then after a week, they're like, yeah, you're not going to start in Madrid, you're going to start in Warsaw." And I'm like, yeah, I don't care. And then the following, yeah, you're not going to start in Barca. you're we actually have an office in Milan, you're going to start in Milan. I was like, whatever, I'm a company man, Do whatever. I was supposed to start on a Monday, on a Saturday, the vice president calls me and is like, Chris, I have something to tell you. I'm also new in this company. I've been working for this company for only three months. (laughs) This was my project and the CEO just shut it down. So we don't have a job for you anymore. Wow. I was like, what? I was like, yeah. um," I was like, yeah, but I signed a contract. So what are we gonna do? And I was like, well, you just go to the office, we'll see. Yeah, but I'm a sales manager. Like if I don't sell, a lot of my pay is depending on my sales. So I stayed there for a month. And then we talked and they gave me a bag of cash and they told me to fuck off and I moved to Bali. And <laughs> 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 that's how I ended up here. Wow. So what
0: was the what was, what was the, uh, the thoughts when you, were, when you were in that? Like when they fired you basically made you redundant? Yeah. Were you already thinking of coming to Bali
1: or what? Like how did that happen? Bali was something that I would always say. I never been to Bali before. I never read anything about Bali. I never knew nothing about Bali. But since I was 18, I've, I've always said, you know, just talking, yeah, one day I'll just move to Bali. One day I'll just, and it got stuck. It, it was like, it became kind of a mantra. And so I was like, well, it's now or never. So I moved to Bali without an expectation. I was like, if I like, I'll stay. If I don't, I'll go somewhere else. And I obviously liked it. And, and now Bali is my home. My son is going to be born in Bali. So... Mm.
0: Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about. So I want to touch on, before we get into that about Bali, I want to touch on the your, your past life a little bit more. Yep. So you said you were, you were married and you, you left, because this is also about relationships, right, this podcast. Okay. So, so uh, I'd like to get into the details a little bit. Absolutely. Because, you know, relationships, is, everyone struggles with relationships, you know. And so you had a relationship with your previous wife. You said you're still in contact with her now. Oh, yeah. And so it was interesting to me to hear what you just said. Like you, you basically knew that you were pulling her down so you just let her go. So it takes a lot of courage to do that and self-awareness. So is that something that you've been cultivating? Like that self-awareness and the courage to do that?
1: I think it was out of love. Mm. Cause I really felt like I had no way out for me. And I really loved her. Love never been a problem between us. And so I was like, I, I, I don't want this for her. Cause I could see that she wasn't happy as well. And um, I've, I have, I have my, I'm very particular cause I have my priorities and I have what I believe in, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to not lose self-respect. I used to have a company with my brother it was an apparel company, and it was doing great. And then I turned 30, and um, my uh, my wife, girlfriend at the time, she her birthday is two days before me. So on her birthday, I proposed to her. And on my birthday, I had this surprise party, and so I was like, well, some of my family here. I'll just break the news, and I said... And then my family is a very... Uh, backstabby family. They like to talk behind the back. And so my mom said, well, your brothers and sisters are not happy about it. I was like, why? Well, if they have problem, talk to me. And so my brother talked to me and he said, he called me and I was like, what's up? I was like, well, I think you should have asked my permission because our father is dead. And he's only two years older than me. And I was like, huh. Hang up the phone left the company, left with zero. Just like that? Yep. Wow. Um, and uh, a week after I was working, I don't know if you, in Italy it was huge, the the expo. There was the expo in Milan. The expo is something that happens every four years. I think that the next one, well, it was supposed to be cause Corona shut it down in Dubai where every country has a pavilion and is a huge uh, touristic attraction. Yeah, yeah. I started working as a tour guide in the Coca-Cola pavilion so from uh, working in suits and tie I was just again uh, doing little parodies. and then after a few months I got picked up by this other company and I got my career back in track but I had zero remorse and I didn't have to think for a second about losing everything that I have built because for me there are some things that are more important and I know I'm very stubborn and it was probably a shitty idea but I stand by it
0: Wow, so you just left on a whim? Yep, like, immediately. Yep, like you have that that capacity to just leave, even if it's your brother. Like
1: we haven't talked for two years, and then we make it up, and now, and he has also, like I, I didn't even listen to his reason. I was just nah, I'm done with you. Mm. And he's a great guy, and he's a he's a he's a great businessman and everything. But at that point, I was like, nah, fuck you.
0: So so. Um I'm just curious why how come in your in your mind like now you have the the beauty of the time looking back at it now mm-hmm. what what do you think triggered you the most about what he said like uh, when he when he called you
1: I hmm, never really thought about it
0: um,
1: I don't know I I found extremely offensive the fact that I should ask for his permission to get married like he was owning me in a way. So I was like, you don't owe me. And Cause also the company, he was the one who put the money in the company. Mm. So even though I was running the company, he was really the one in charge. So I was like, "That." so there was this power dynamic. And once I understood that in his opinion, this power dynamic was not only at the office, but was, Three sixty degrees. I was like, nah, "I'm out. I have my dignity, and I'm not gonna stand by it." Mm.
0: But it's good that you guys made up now. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because yeah. you can't you can't hold grudges forever, right? You gotta let it
1: go. Yeah. I yeah, this is one of the the longest time I held a grudge. I have uh, I have a temper, uh, but I'm I'm almost like a kid. Like I immediately then a release um, with him. We made up after two years, because after two years, I reached out. Otherwise, we could have made up even earlier. Because I never think that confrontation is a bad thing. Mm. And it, it depends also when you are For example, in Indonesia, they tend to stay away from confrontation. It's just a culture, it's not better, it's not worse. Yeah. I think that the confrontation is the fastest way to reach to like a goal or solving a problem. Mm. Because if there's something about you that I don't like, if I don't tell you, then things can like slowly escalate at the point where I just explode. But if I tell you immediately, then we can do something. You might say, I don't care, but at least I know where you stand. Because sometimes, there, for example, in relationship, there are things that the partner might do, and they're not even conscious of the fact that you find those behavior annoying or irritating or disrespectful. But if you don't talk about it,
0: do you think? Have you always been like that? Like, you, has it always been easy for you to yes. handle conflict
1: yes. easily? Yes, absolutely.
0: Where do you think that comes from?
1: Well, I come from a family of uh, mostly lawyers. That might be it,
0: because <laughs> <laughs> you know most families, like especially my family, like that's not something that comes natural to to, to my family.
1: Oh no, my know? family! I, I told you they yeah, love they to. About- yes. Yeah. And I've always been the one that, when they start talking about like, let's say you're part of my family, everyone, oh yeah. As soon as you walk out, oh, but you know what it And I would just walk away. I'll be like, fuck you guys. I walk away. I don't want to know nothing about that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I just can't be bothered.
2: Mm.
1: <laughs> so what were you like as a kid? I was just curious. <sighs> as a kid, I was, I was actually, Okay, uh, how do I say that without sounding like an asshole? <laughs> that's true. Yeah, you're an asshole. <laughs> I I was kind of the golden boy. Okay, uh, because I went to school one year before everyone else, and uh, everything. And this was my biggest problem. Everything I ever did came easy to me, and that's why I always gave up. Mm. Uh, for example, when I was 12, 13, I don't remember. I won the regional swimming competition. And I remember I was with my mother after, and this guy comes and says, I represent a pro team. I would like your son to start thinking about it. At that point, I looked at my mom and I said, I never want to swim again. And I never swam again. I've always had big imposter syndrome, Mm. but even bigger than that, I always felt like I didn't deserve the successes that I had. And that's mm-hmm. why also I never really held a job for more than two years. I will come in a job, I will become the best sales manager or whatever it is. And I'll be like, nah, fuck this shit. I'm gonna go somewhere else. By the way, can I curse? Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> fuck you, Aaron.
0: <laughs> oh, Bali Comedy Club.
1: You guys got to
0: come out to Bali and go to a show. But anyway,
1: let's, let's not only now is at national TV. So 2020 was conquering Bali. No, sorry, 2021, well, also in 2020 I did. 2021 was conquering Mali, check. 2022, conquering Indonesia. 2023, the world. Mm, yeah, amazing. And we're gonna talk about that in a second,
0: but let's go back, backtrack to what yep. you were talking about. So you were talking about how you, you felt like you don't deserve things. Oh, absolutely, all the time. Even now. <laughs>
1: Comedy is the only thing that feels a little bit different. Um, and is also the only time where I'm not sick of it after this long that I do it. I work extremely hard. Uh, the reason of my success in comedy is purely the fact that I work harder than anyone else. And there's not even a question about it. You can ask any comedian in Indonesia... I will say yeah, but I always feel that somehow I have it easy. Now my the way I take it though is different, and is uh, actually thanks to a mushroom trip that I had. Uh, I had this mushroom trip and. Uh, I went into my settings, like if it was a video game and I saw, and I, and I put it in like easy mode and I, and it's almost like I had the cheat code. I had this moment of clarity. And uh, now I just accept that if life is easy, I must be doing something right. Cause I've always been doing something right to have something uh, and of course you have uh, i have some qualities like i remember one of the biggest compliments that one of my ex bosses ever said to me when i quit my job because i got tired of it I was like chris you're the person that i know that can do most as many things good because there are people that can do one thing much better than you but you can do pretty much everything at a high level the problem with you is that when i give you something to do that uh, your colleagues would uh, finish in four hours, I don't know if it's going to take you 30 minutes or two weeks. And if it takes you two weeks, I know that you're just bored and you don't want to do it. Mm. And that's that I, I've always self sabotage myself. Mm. And now I'm just like, fuck it. And maybe the thing that allow me not to self sabotage myself, the, the one big difference that I have is my son? It's so weird because the moment my girlfriend got pregnant, the level of motivation completely shifted. It was like, "Oh shit! Now, now it's game time!" Like I was all in, but like now I have to, I have to make it happen.
0: Mm. Yeah. So talk about that. So. That's fascinating to me, like the, yeah. the, the, what it does to your mentality once you know that you, you have a son on the way.
1: I've always been a giver, like in the relationship I've also, I was always uh, the one who gave a hundred percent and I received a little bit. And it's amazing that my girlfriend is also a person that gives hundred percent and that's why this is the first time that I never compromised in a relationship and the first time that I'm loved the, the, exactly the way I want to be loved, which is incredible but yet so we weren't we weren't trying to have some she was on the pill and uh the moment she told me actually i did i found out because she i came back home and she looked at me in a weird way and i was like did you either just cheated on me or you're pregnant <laughs> and she was like the second i was like oh shit I wished it was the first. <laughs> and then I had to go to a meeting. So I went to the meeting and just for 30 minutes, I felt like I've been rocked by a left hook. Like I, and after that, I was just so happy. Like it was, and, But it's not about the happiness. It's, it's really the motivation. I couldn't even explain. We, like something clicked. Like it was a missing piece. Also, um, so the same year that I was born, my father was 50 when he had me. He got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So I've always seen my father sick. And um, he couldn't really be a father figure for me because it wasn't his fault. He was always sick. And my mother was my father figure and my mother figure. So when I was younger, when they would ask you, uh, what do you want to do when you grow up? I wouldn't say astronaut or firefighter. I would always say, I want to be a daddy. And in my mind, I had always this goal that by 25, I want to have my first son. And then it didn't happen. I tried to have children with a few women, with my ex-wife. We tried for one or two years. It didn't work. And the crazy thing is that two weeks before my girlfriend got pregnant, my wife got pregnant with her new partner.
0: Wow. (laughs) That's that's, that's creepy, man. That's crazy. So, wow. So let's go back to what you just said there. Like You said that you've always wanted to be a daddy? Mm-hmm. Like, Cause that's like a question that people ask when you're young, right? Oh, what, do you, what are you gonna be when you grow up? Oh, I, you I, knew I, from an early age yes. that you just
1: wanted to be a father. I want to be a father, yes. Oh. Uh, and uh, no matter what I will accomplish with comedy or other thing, being a father would be the one single biggest thing in my life. Mm. Like no doubt. Right. I want to, uh, ideally I would like to have a boy and a girl and then start adopting.
0: Mm how many kids in total do you want to have
1: as many as I can afford
0: (laughs) 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 for sure. What's the like general size of Italian families just out of curiosity? Oh, now they're very small. Okay.
1: So I think that Italy and Japan are the one that are the opposite of growing the most. Mm. Um, Because now the classic Italian family, like people my age is uh, first of all, you have children really late. Like uh thirty-five and up. And then most they have one kid and that's it. And of course this means decreasing the population because from two people you make yeah, only one right. person. Uh, I have uh, two brothers, one sister, they all have only one kid. Mm. And you're gonna be the you're gonna be the anomaly
0: in the in the family.
1: You're gonna have like yeah. five kids? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would love I would love a big family, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So um, just one more question on that. So I'm just really fascinated by the fact that when you were a young kid, you knew that you wanted to be a father. Yeah. And where do you think that, that comes from? Is it just purely the fact that
1: you always saw your father sick? Or? Yeah, I think because I, I wanted a father. So I was like, oh, for my kid, I'm going to be there. Mm. And I'm going to like uh, do everything for him that my father cannot do for me. Mm. I guess is that. Yeah.
0: There's, there's another question that comes to mind is... Um, I always, I always like to ask people this just in conversation. It's sure. like, whose, whose love did you crave for the most? Like your mother's or your father's?
1: I have no idea. So my mother is is one of the strongest person I know, but is also one of the least affectionate person I know. I was probably the only kid who had to ask the mother for a hug and not the other way around. Mm. Like she, and even when she asked me, she's like, you know, like, <laughs> nah. But she took care of four kids. Her mother was sick. Um, my father, who had Parkinson's, she's a, she a machine. And the thing that is weird with my father is that uh, I have kind of a fucked up memory. I have a good memory, like in memorizing my sets, et cetera, et cetera. When I was studying law, I would memorize a book in two days, but my father died that I wasn't that young. My father died that I was 18. I maybe have four memories of him. Damn. Yeah.
0: What was your relationship like with him?
1: I remember that I was the favorite. Uh, uh, he died in my arms. Uh, it was, it was a pretty intense uh, thing because, uh, well, Parkinson's, even though it affects your mobility, it comes from the hat. Mm. And he was taking these pills and these pills made him go crazy. So, have you seen The Shining? No. The movie, The Shining? Well, basically, well, he started seeing people and it became a shit show. And mm. it wasn't his fault, it just, yes, and yes. that also, made me really think about reality because he was seeing people and for him they were real just as I see you and these people were telling him things so thing got really out of hands and that was obviously the most traumatic moment in my life uh, but I was there of course to protect my mother and uh, and maybe that's why I removed uh, most of my memories uh, about my father
0: because mm, it's so painful right yeah. Must have been
1: and I um, came to, I came to terms with the death of my father probably just last year. Wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like I can't even imagine that. Like just thinking about it now because I lost my grandma, but I wasn't I wasn't there for her passing. Uh, but I remember touching her her head and it was just stone cold, and
1: I was just like my, I, I was bawling my eyes out. You know, it's like such a painful memory. Actually, my my grandma also died in my arms. um so like. I'm that lucky, but I actually feel like I'm privileged to to be there uh, for the passing yeah, of two absolutely. of the people I love the most. Yeah. I remember my grandma; she was 86 at the time, and you know, you you would think that at that age you kind of are okay with the. She she was she was fighting. She was like she was screaming at me. I don't want to die, and I was held. I didn't know what to do, and then she she was gripping my my hand as strong as she could and then she let go and then one tear came out and I was actually dumb. I think I might want to turn into a set because I was so dumb. I was such a dumb white privilege kid (laughs) because when she told me, help me what I do, I literally looked at her and said, follow the light. And she looked at me like, what the fuck? I just told you that I don't want to do that. I'm like, well, then then do you. Like, if you don't want to follow my advice, then fuck it.
0: So that wasn't an emotional moment for you?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah like, but, but in that moment, I was like more like, and, and is uh, I had also the same when my father died. It was more like, Chris, you have to keep your shit together because uh, your mother is, of course, going crazy and crying and whatever. You, you're the man. You have to keep your shit mm. together. You cannot cry. Right. But from the moment my father died, I didn't cry until I was 33 four or something 33 so how long that was what 16 years
0: yep wow
1: couldn't cry couldn't cry couldn't cry
0: did you, did you try to
1: did oh, you go to yeah. ferrib- What was the, the journey only time though? i did in that time span was uh, during an ayahuasca trip ah. that i cried
0: yeah so did i yeah yeah i cried at the ayahuasca released a lot of stuff yeah have you done you, so how many times have you done ayahuasca <sighs> eight something like that Whoa. Yeah. So what's the, the value of the, the plant medicine
1: for you? Always oh, incredible. Yeah. Especially the first time changed my life. But you know what they say that, and it's true, like every time he shows you what you need to be shown in a mm. way, mm. always very powerful. So this is what I think happens with uh, psychedelics. And I'm not a drug advocate at all. To me, those are not really drugs though, in a way so and you can achieve the same without drugs for example i had similar experience with ayahuasca when i did my vipassana which is 10 days meditation so this is the way i see it we are all walking a path and it's your very personal path some people are walking backwards some people are walking forward uh we're all going different speed and most likely in this life we're absolutely in this life we're not going to reach the end When you do those kind of experiences, it's like if a Mustang comes, it drives you a hundred kilometers forward, you you jump off, you look around, and then it brings you back exactly at the point that you were. So to reach that point you still have to walk, but you know what's there. Mm.
0: Yeah. And do you feel like it's like opening up the your subconscious? Oh, absolutely. Like it's like Every thought that you think is just magnified by like a thousand percent.
1: And also you have those moments of clarity that when you think about it, you're like, what? Like during my first Ayahuasca trip, I had this moment that was one of the most powerful moments in my life where I forgave everyone for whatever they did to me. And I forgave myself for everything that I ever did. And it was so powerful. And then I really felt like I was part of the universe and the universe was part of me. And now when I say, I'm like, yeah. But at that moment, it was like, oh my God, how did I not see it?
0: Did you make a joke about that too?
1: Not yet, not yet. That's actually, I was thinking about it while I was saying, I was like, hmm.
0: So now your life has become a joke. How do you feel about that?
1: I love it. I love it. The thing that people don't realize is that Many of the things I say are lies. <laughs> it's like this is the thing. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Mm. And and this is also what I teach, like cause we all have a library of stories, like the story you tell at a party or in a first date or whatever. If you think about it, you can always make it funnier. Like reality like you're imagining if reality is It's crazier than your imagination. You have a shit imagination. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But especially because my girlfriend is the butt of most of my jokes. Like people after the show come to her and say, is it true? And she's like, no motherfucker, it's not true. Every time. Like I did a, a whole set about anal sex with my girlfriend. And after the show, 20 people came to ask her about her anal sex experience. <laughs> she was like, Are you guys fucking crazy. But that's the funny thing about
0: everyone who's not in comedy, like myself included, before I started talking to you about doing comedy and started performing, I've, I I thought the same thing. I thought, oh wow, like all this stuff is true. Like it must be true. Like they're talking about it on stage. <laughs>
2: you know, like.
1: And that's also what they always tell me when they, uh, when we are rehearsal or I teach somebody, oh no, but this was a, a true story. I don't care. <laughs> Like make it funny. I don't care if it's true. I want it funny. Yeah, I literally did that. <laughs> oh, it's true, it's true, you it also did.
0: Right. Oh, but that's what happened. He's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, so, okay. Um, I want to touch on uh, meeting Toko because that was a mass, that's that's yes. been a life Paco changing. Toko is my girlfriend. He just, Toko is Chris's girlfriend. She's from South Africa. Beautiful, lovely lady. Oh my God. Full of love. This is a ball of love, right? This, yeah. that's, that's how I would describe her. Obviously. How that's a th-
1: really good description. Though. Yeah, she
0: is. Like she really is. And um, so going from your ex-wife coming to Bali and uh, I saw a video of yours, you were documenting actually like your, your days when, when COVID hit. You know, mm, of course, yeah. you were still doing the comedy, but then obviously you kind of got guys got shut down because of the COVID yep. and lockdowns and stuff. And you're just reflecting on things. And I was watching a lot of your stuff, and you were saying how like you're were, you're were feeling alone, even though you 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 know you're you love being by yourself, but you're a bit alone. Mm-hmm. You're maybe thinking of having some housemates and stuff, just people to talk to, yep. right? And I feel like people, lots of people, can relate to that. But it's interesting looking at that version of Chris, and then now you oh. now. You know, because you, who was to know that this toko would come into your life? You know, you would never have known that back then.
1: Yeah. So after my girlfriend here in Bali, here in Bali, I, I was a little bit crazy with the dates. Uh, but especially there was this girl that uh, uh, it was a very toxic relationship, very codependent relationship that ended very badly. I. Uh, at the end of this relationship, I felt really used, uh, especially financially, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to get into that too much. No. Well, I don't care about getting into it. If you have questions, <laughs> no. you can ask. Um, but so it was a, my, a point in my life where I was very lost. Yeah. And I was just, I was on Tina. I think I was i was having two to four dates every day. Wow. And I'm not a very organized person. So I would mix the people and <laughs> three girls would show up on the same day. It was a mess. It was a mess. Uh, But I'm very straight. I've always I'm always very honest. I'm always very straightforward. Mm. And uh, at at that point, I couldn't take it no more. So now when I would match with girls, I would just send uh, my WhatsApp number without even saying hi. (laughs) So this girl brought me and I and I thought it was another girl. And so I'm like, uh, so how about seven at uh, Black Sand, which is Mm -hmm. a place here? Yeah. She's like, okay. And then I meet I see her coming. I didn't expect uh, to see her. Uh, She's very unique, especially in Bali. She's, she's very black. She's absolutely (laughs) gorgeous. I was like, Oh, okay, nice. And I started talking to her. And after I I very seldomly give compliments to women on first dates. Mm. Uh, I used to be a pickup artist, a famous pickup artist in Italy as well. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Damn, just a whole like, oh <laughs>
1: shit, okay. And and after five minutes, I was like, wait a second, this, this is going way too good. Like there is something wrong because it's going too well.
2: Mm.
1: And, uh, and then we kissed and then I brought her home and we spent the night together and it was amazing. And then the next day I drove her to the airport because she was on our last day of holiday. Now this was all the while COVID was becoming a thing. hmm So we go to the airport, flight canceled. So we spend the whole day together again. Then the next day, I bring her to the airport, and I hope, I'm like praying that the flight get canceled, but she hops into her flight, and she goes back to South Africa. We started talking on Zoom. She had a beautiful job, and after a week, I was like, I I want you to leave your beautiful job, say fuck off to your friends and family, and move in Bali to me with me. And it took her six months because everything was closed. was locked down.
0: Wow. Damn. That felt and, awesome. and
1: she took that leap the leap of yeah, faith, yeah. of course, because you know, on my side, I was like, yeah, she's coming. Of course I was feeling very responsible. And in my head, I was like, even if it doesn't work, I need to make it work somehow. Cause I'm changing this girl's life and whatever, but you never know what's going to happen for her. It was a complete jump in the dark, but you went, went well,
0: so she said she said yes to that request immediately after after what? Forty eight hours. Forty eight hours.
1: Not even like forty.
0: And she said yes. Yep. But then she went back to, she went back
1: to. No, she was already in South Africa when I asked her.
0: Oh, okay, got got it. So So she was in South Africa. She she said
1: yes, and we thought that uh, after a couple of months. she thinks would we'll go back to normal and so she left her job and then she was stuck at home with no way of uh, maintaining <laughs> herself so it was like also shitty situation at that point
0: <laughs> so you're like oh shit! i just ruined this girl's life exactly <laughs> in the short term in the short term
1: <laughs> long term it's all good absolutely but i also knew that in bali she could have uh, made a career cause uh, she's obviously very beautiful. Mm. And she, she's been doing uh, beauty pageants since she was a child. She became, I think top 15 or 20 of me, South Africa and stuff. Oh. But of course in Bali is a very unique kind of beauty in South Africa. Obviously there are a lot of very beautiful, very black girls here in Bali is very unique. She stands out also because she has very short hair. So, the modeling career in Bali of course until she got pregnant was taken off
0: Mm. wow so she's she's found her feet in Bali oh absolutely and did you always foresee that as being the the future for her here did you foresee like oh yeah she can have a life here you know yeah absolutely you thought about that yeah it wasn't just about you
1: (laughs) for once (laughs) (laughs) no and that's the thing also because that's also the thing it's like she comes like i want her to have her own thing like i i can have her 24 hours next to me and i'm happy but i want her to be able to have her friend and this was one of my concerns because she's coming to a country where she knows nobody but me she has nothing she's starting from scratch and that was the first time in her life i'm used to it when i was 16 i moved to the us then i lived in spain i lived in greece i lived in africa i lived in iceland for me it's, it's normal it's a normal process for her it was the first time moving to a different country It wasn't in a different country it was a different continent but she's also one of the strongest people i know uh she comes from very very humble in the beginnings in the middle of south africa um she moved to cape town alone which if you're a Girl, a pretty girl moving to Cape Town with no money is a very dangerous place. And uh, she she had only the money for the bus. She entered an office and said, I need a job. Uh, you have to give me this job now because I have nowhere to go. And she got the job. And she started working in marketing even without a degree. And she ended up being the, uh, the manager of the biggest client of the biggest marketing company in uh, South Africa
0: amazing
1: like she was destined to become the ceo of the biggest marketing company but and even that she left everything for this
0: (laughs) well that for that now we come full circle because you just told me that you were a pickup artist so i'm thinking those skills that you acquired absolutely helped persuade her to leave this amazing job so
1: so what you're saying is (laughs) i could never understand how she ended up with you that's what you're saying
0: (laughs) you must have drugged her like i don't know thank you you. did you get her ayahuasca or something
1: (laughs) i have a very racist joke about it (laughs) which is and and this is one of the thing i do because of course with comedy comedy my style of comedy there's different kind of comedy there's clean comedy my style of comedy is very at the line. The problem is that everyone has a different line. Yes. Um, So there is this joke and I run all my jokes with her. Mm -hmm. The problem is that her line is also very far. So sometimes I'm like, Are you sure? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So one of my jokes, which is very dumb, uh, I'm very racist. That's why I like it um, (laughs) is um, well, of course, because everyone can see that she's gorgeous as I'm me. I'm like, and the joke is that um, if she was white, she would be way out of my league. <laughs> but she's African, so she th- she thinks that I'm the catch.
0: <laughs> oh man! And that's the funny thing about um, you having a black girlfriend as a comedian—that
1: gives you so much more material now. That's why I told her you're the best thing ever for my career.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it literally, like, he just did a special, uh, literally a few days, three days ago now, four yeah. days ago, called Pregnant. And it was an hour, was it an hour and a half?
1: Yeah, it was a long it was time. Because lo- usually a, long a special, special is one hour. I had, But that's the thing, I've read so much, that I had so much material, yeah. that I I of, lo- it could have been two hour and a half.
0: Mm, wow. Yeah, and, and it was all about...
1: You, your your yeah.
0: girlfriend being pregnant,
1: my girlfriend, like, and, and and also a raising jokes. a mixed race uh, son. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot a lot of yeah. jokes. Because also there's going to be a lot of uh, challenges. Yes, obviously. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge would actually be making sure that my son is attached to reality. Because growing up in Bali, man, this is not real life. You know this. <laughs> like I don't want him to like. That's why, and, and, and we are, luckily also, well, we'll see when he's born, but for now, everything we discuss me and talk, we have the same vision also about our son. I want him to go, since he's uh, young, uh, every summer, one month in Italy, one month in Africa, to, to also experience real life. You know, I don't want him to just grow in Bali.
0: Mm. You want him to have that worldly perspective, yeah. just like you had. Yeah, you were growing up like you went around and you've traveled around, but in also history.
1: like, and but especially in Africa, because uh, and and I and I'm so proud of her and what she said and what she achieved in her life. Uh, there's been times in her life when my girlfriend was living in a shack, and that actually. And, and here in Bali, like most people, most expats that live in Bali have a have a house with a pool and have maids and whatnot. Like I want, I don't want my son to be spoiled little mm. kid. Like I want my son to know his heritage and where he comes from. That's why I want him to go to Africa. That's why I want him to go to Italy.
2: Mm.
0: And go and live how your girlfriend used to live. Yes, absolutely. So he can have that perspective
1: like, oh shit, we, we have a good back back in Bali. This ain't normal life. Exactly, <laughs> but this is also the thing. Like we we know what we experience. So if you just grow here, you think, yeah, that's everything. And mm. you read and stuff, that's the thing. Until it happens to you, you cannot really grasp it. Mm. Like if you've always been rich, you cannot really grasp poverty. Mm. If you've always been privileged, you cannot really grasp being a minority. Like it's, it's normal. Yep. You, you can have as much Empathy as you can, but you cannot, you cannot really understand. Mm. Like I cannot understand being, I don't know, profiled or whatever, because mm. it never happened to me.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. And on that, along on that note, so how do you deal with the people that don't like your jokes, like the you, like you're talking about? <laughs> as you're talking about the line. People have people varying degrees yep. of like what's offensive, what's not offensive. You know, what you sh- that guy shouldn't be talking about this. Like, so how do
1: you deal with these kinds of people as, as you're performing? As I told you, I'm very open to confrontation. Yep. There's two ways to criticize the joke. And if you talk about your personal experience and your personal humor and the fact that you've been offended by a joke, for example, I will always listen to you and I will always try to understand your point of view. And uh, if you feel that way, you can't be wrong because that's how you feel. The problem is when people generalize, because then it's just not true. Like, then you just try to make a point. But if somebody comes to me and... um, tells me I had a problem with that joke first of all I want to know what was the problem and I want to go deep because as much feedback I can get the better it is because maybe I can make the joke better because I feel that there is no taboo you could be able to make a joke about everything the thing is that you have to make it clever enough or funny enough the problem is not that the joke is offensive the problem is that that person didn't find that joke funny enough so if it's not funny. Second thing you have to understand uh, where that joke comes from. What's the deeper meaning with, behind that joke? What's the context of that joke? But also this is the thing about offensive joke. Like for example, Dave Chappelle got a lot of backlash for the trans, And uh, th- there is this concept, especially in the US, we comedian, which is punching up and punching down. For example, I'm a white man. I if I talk about uh, black people or women or trans, I'm punching down because in society, the patriarchy, whatever, uh, I'm perceived as a higher status. And we're trying to change and we're trying to make a level playing field. If I, and and that's what Dave Chappelle was all about. He was like, I'm not punching down when I talk about trans, I'm punching up because trans people made shit happens in a few years so much more than the black community ever did. Now, the thing about comedians is this. Uh, The comedian is a very, very old job. It comes down when we were jesters uh, at the court. And the comedian's job was to talk shit. The comedian was the only, the jester, the buffoon, whatever you want to call it, he was the only one that was allowed to talk shit about the king. Because he would make it in a funny way and people would say, and he would not be killed if he was funny enough. If he wasn't funny, then his head would be chopped out. But the role of the comedian, I think, is misunderstood. The comedian is not the one who has to change the world. The comedian is the one who just shed a light on the problems of society. That's the only job. He's not a politician. He's not not there to change. He's there to say, there's a problem here. The day I, let's say, make a rape joke and nobody gets offended is the day there's no more rapes. But if somebody gets offended, it means that it's a real problem and we need to keep talking about it.
0: Mm, okay, I see what you're saying. So you're, you're kind of, you're just shining a light on the problem. So that's you it. don't, you don't, it doesn't, I'm not part of me. the solution. Right. But it doesn't trigger you when you offend someone. That's actually what you that's your job.
1: Also. Yeah, in a way yeah. it is. In a way, yeah. In a way it is. Yeah. It really is. And yeah. of course, there's different levels of, like, there's some jokes that makes no sense. Like, uh, for example, I think I told you before in a dinner we had a uh, few days ago, I teach comedy. And uh, now in Bali, as I, as you said, people know me. And when people want to try in comedy, they want to impress me. And one of the most natural thing that people try to do to impress me is making very offensive joke as their first joke, or their first set. <laughs> and I had a dozen people saying having a joke that included the n-word i was like what why like why just because they wanted to have this shock value and they went black no of course of course <laughs> none of that was black He's like well, what the fuck are you talking about i think i heard my girlfriend say the n-word maybe twice in two years
2: damn
1: yeah Actually, one time she called me the N-word, and I was so proud. I was like, say it again, say it again, say it again. Are you putting that one in? That was a good one. I actually, even before, like when she told me she's pregnant and I still have to, I would not say the N-word, obviously, Mm -hmm. but I'm still trying to find a way, because it's something that I thought about, like, what if my son called me with the N-word? (laughs) like i will lose all my my power as a parent because i can't reply you know like if you say shut up and then he said like i have to shut up (laughs) like what do i do then (laughs) what do you do then exactly
2: exactly
0: It's funny because now we're talking about it. That might actually happen. Like you're bringing it in. You're you're calling it in.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, of course, son. Oh. I, and mm-hmm. I think that in theory, mm-hmm. I could be able to use the N word in a joke, but it's such a there's such a history behind the word that it should be such clever joke that is on a level that is almost unprecedented mm. you know what I mean yeah so,
0: so we're talking about comedy you are talking about uh, fatherhood mm-hmm. what are you uh, most excited about becoming a father like what's, what's the most exciting thing for you <laughs>
1: It's, it's, it's so difficult to describe. Like, becoming a father is, is is the culmination. Like, that's what we're meant to do. That's our DNA programming. We're meant to reproduce. That's what we do. That's how we grow as a species. And to have, like, someone that you made, I, I just, like, it's almost like, I, I, of course I am my goal and I want to work hard and I love so much my girlfriend. And one day she's gonna become one my wife when I get the divorce, cause I'm still in the process. Uh, but when my son is like, I ease everything. Like I would die in a, in a heartbeat. Like if uh, touch wood or whatever you guys do in Italy, we touch our balls. Uh, <laughs> true. Really? Yeah. Uh, we, we either say knock on steel. And yeah. because we are very cocky, we touch our balls. <laughs> that's what we do. And like, if you would have a problem, I would give him all my organs in I s I wouldn't like that. That's like my son is 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 everything mm. everything and I would murder everyone for my son.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: Without thinking it twice. Mm. The problem is that you don't really have control of someone and you want to protect it. You want to nest it. And I see when I grew up, I was a fucking dickhead. I'm still a fucking dickhead. (laughs) So there's going to come a point where you have to let go of control because the control is just a few years of his life. When you teach him and you do the best you can and you fuck up because everyone fucks up and ideally you fuck up the least possible, Mm. but then you have to let control of this thing that was it's gonna be hard and it's gonna be amazing and it's gonna be just the most important thing i'll mm-hmm. ever do
0: yeah that's beautiful do you want to have kids? kid yeah eventually yeah
1: nice how old are you now 32
0: all right yeah yes yeah, so i got a few few years to go you know yeah i feel like so that's what i'm gonna ask you so do you do you feel like you're ready
1: absolutely not but you'll <laughs> never be ready.
2: Like, it's, yeah, it's is, impossible. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. That
1: is actually one of the problems we have in Italy. Mm. Uh, because everyone is like, yeah, financially, finance, And even my brother, my brother had a, my brother had, well, he had it earlier than me, like, 32, 33. But he was the CEO of fashion companies. He had a lot of money and still was like, well, I don't know. You just have to do it and just roll with it. Like, you're never going to be ready. If you wait for the perfect condition, you're never going to have a child. But this goes with everything. We goes with opening a company, we started a project, with everything. Mm. If I would have waited things to be perfect, I would have never started comedy.
2: Because
1: mm. what? Then I have to write the perfect joke before I start comedy. But if I don't start comedy, I'm never going to write the perfect joke because I'm not going to have that experience. So it's impossible.
2: Mm.
1: And the perfect joke doesn't exist.
0: Mm. So how do you cultivate that? Because a lot of people struggle with that. Like people are watching. There's a lot of people out there that are very smart at what they do, but they're not going for certain things in their life because, because of the fear. You know, like the fear is holding them back. And the excuse is, I'm not ready, story. So how do, you, how do you navigate around that? How do you get around that?
1: There was a point in my life where I was like, shit, that's too late to do this thing. And then one year would pass and I was like, shit, now it's too late. Last year was the right time, but now it's too late. And then I thought, oh no, but I could have still done it. And it was, you just have to stop giving a fuck. Uh, I was in a very lucky position because I was in Bali. I didn't need to work. And so I was like, that's right. I loved it and I just went full it. And not everyone has uh, this kind of luck, but this is one thing I hate. People that tell me, oh, you live in Bali. You're so lucky. I wish I could. Then fucking do it. Yeah, yeah, I say that all the time. Yeah, yeah. Then fucking do it. Oh, no, but you know, I don't have the money. Yeah, you don't have, but you just bought the iPhone 13. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it, motherfucker? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, oh, yeah, but I have a fam- There's families here. Yep. Like, if you want to do it, you find a way. Maybe you cannot do it immediately, but you can have steps towards mm. Why do you think they do that? Why do you think people make excuses for themselves? Because it's much easier. Mm. It's a much easier life. Because mm. it strips away your responsibilities.
2: Because
1: mm. if you say, oh, yeah, I, I wish, but I can't, then it's like, oh, poor me. <laughs> and people love to be nestled and say, yeah. You see? It's, it's the, the world is evil. It's not you. <laughs> so I, can, I gather that you're not raising your son like that.
2: <laughs>
1: nah, I'm going to spoil my son a lot, though. Uh, luckily, uh, he's gonna have an African mother that is gonna keep him on track.
0: <laughs>
1: so you're not going to be the discipl-
0: disciplinary uh, one.
1: I don't know. I, I really as I, I, I will know as soon as I see him.
2: Mm.
1: I'm lucky though that I'm not gonna have a daughter. I know for a fact that if I'm gonna have a daughter, it's done. She can do whatever she wants, <laughs> like is <laughs> anything, daddy. Yes, like
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that from a few fathers that. When you have a daughter, that is just, it's just like, you're literally like looking at your heart every exactly. day. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting uh, thing to imagine for me, because I don't have kids, but I could definitely see how...
1: But also it depends, because of course now I've been talking to, with a lot of fathers and father too be because now that's pretty much all I talk about is my pregnant girlfriend and my son. <laughs> I had also people telling me that until my third son, I didn't really feel like a father. Which I was like, "Whoa, that's crazy!" Like I felt, I, I really feel like a father, and he's not even bored. But I guess everyone is different.
0: Yeah, yeah. This must be shitty fathers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty much, <laughs> pretty much.
0: So, so when you came to Bali, you went into public speaking, mm-hmm. and what what was the thinking behind that? Is that something you've always liked?
1: Oh yeah, I've always you've, liked. Always uh, enjoyed I'm,
0: being in front of the crowd.
1: I'm obviously very egomaniac. Uh, (laughs) I like the attention. Yep. And um, I like the dopamine hits that Mm. public speaking gives to you.
2: Mm.
1: But then that's why I love comedy, because the dopamine hit when the audience cheers or laughs or is much stronger than the dopamine hit. uh, If you make somebody cry, for example, with the speech, or and also you get so many more dopamine hits because you get one every joke. Mm.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's a, such such an
1: addictive job. Oh, absolutely. It's and a it, drug. It's a drug.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's like, I'm, I'm curious about your perspective on it. Because Dave, Dave Chappelle said, being a comedian is the most craziest job because your whole livelihood depends on external validation. It's like, everything is about... Yep. They, if they don't validate you by laughing, then that's, that's your career done. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. A
1: hundred percent. And it's a job that, you know what I hate? I hate people that come to me and they want to compliment me. And then then they're doing it in good faith. And they're like, oh yes, especially now, the world needs laughter. Cause you are like a a, a doctor. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) I do a useless (laughs) job. Without comedians, the world would be fine. I'm not a fucking pilot. I'm not a researcher. Like, shut the fuck up, please. (laughs) Like, seriously, I'm just feeding my ego and, and luckily I'm doing it in a way that is entertaining. That's all there is to mm, it. Yeah,
0: yeah. People read too much into it, right? Yeah. They place... But 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 actually, in the same breath, though, there is value in helping people laugh. Because I was, I was actually watching an interview with Jimmy Carr and he was talking about how... The drug is inside of you, like the the, the oxytocin, mm-hmm. like the, all, this, all these all uh, these hormones that we have, chemicals and stuff. The drugs inside of us. He just his uh, his jokes allow the drug to come out. And That's and, an and, interesting
1: thing. Yeah, yeah I was, I was, I was, but you I was, can also take a pill, and that's the same effect. <laughs> yeah, <you can. laughs> so we're like legal ecstasy.
0: Yeah, but as, you know it's interesting though. As we're talking about this, is you know. People like sometimes recently, for example, uh, the last couple of months, I've been going through like this state of just like not being, can't be fucked to do a lot of things, you know, like mild, mild depression, not, not a big depression. So I think taking people, you know, into that other state where they're laughing and in the feeling the positive emotions is very uh, healing for a lot of people who've gone through like who are going through this shit.
1: You know? Sure. Yep. But that's the thing. Comedy is just one of thousand different avenues where you can heal yourself, let's mm. say. Because it's true, like during a comedy show, you, you turn off your brain and you concentrate and you laugh at other people. is releasing. But you can do that in many other ways as well. You can do that watching a movie. You can do that listening to music. So it's not like comedy. Oh, my God. Comedy is so pure. I'm talking about farts and anal, like, no, it's not pure. (laughs) Come on now. I'm not, I'm like, and if I'm, that I'm the egomaniac that wants the external validation, if I tell you it's not that important, that don't, like, it's it's, it's not, it's not, it's, it's all right, like, I take it, I'll take whatever I can get. If you tell me that because of me, I'm curing you, pay me more then. Mm. Because then I'm doing an even better job, so you should pay me much more.
2: Mm. Yeah,
0: true. Yeah, it's true. Because like the the depression thing is um, it's depression is huge, man. I didn't realize how big depression was. Oh, it's, but it's it's like I was listening to something recently. It's like suicide is a symptom of depression. It's not mm. right. Like su- d- depression is actually the main thing. But people because people can't see inside your brain, so you look at someone and be like oh they are cool, you know.
1: The problem of depression though is this, and I was depressed and mm. suicidal. Is um, and it's obviously a very delicate topic, and yep. depression is is a disease, and it should be. And, and too many people dismiss it, and but depression is a product of our society. Uh, is uh, is a counter effect of all the way we're fucking the world and ourselves, because you don't really see Aboriginal. People in the Amazon depressed. The you know what I mean? Yeah. The press depression is a construct that we created because we put so much pressure on society and our role and we are insignificant, but all of us is. Um I, I've been having depression since I was a kid, and uh, I've been feeling many times the weight of the world on my shoulder to the point that I would look at my hand, see if I was trembling because my father had Parkinson, and wished I had Parkinson. Or many times I wished I had cancer. Because in my mind, then if I did, then I would release all the pressure because then nobody would expect anything from me and I would be free. Mm. And again, it's just about society. Like the cure for depression is changing society. What do you mean by that? Because right now we, we depend and I work with external validation, but we, but I learned to get to terms with it. Like, Things like cyberbullying, and we live in a world where you feel like the world is closing on you, and everyone is against you. And uh, I think we need to change our point of view on what the world really is, and how we teach our children, and how, and focus more on the possibility and not having. FOMO about everything and seeing people's Instagram posts and feeling bad because other people are pretending to live a good life that we can, like, it's, it's so fucked, mm. you know? Mm. It's so fucked. Things are getting more and more complicated. Now the the I know nothing about, but the metaverse now creating <laughs> different reality. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm going to be the old father when my son is going to be on the metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's him.
0: So how did you um, overcome the, the, the depression? Like how did you do it? What were the steps you took? Because someone, mm. someone out there, the reason I asked that is because someone out there might maybe is going through something similar that, Absolutely. that you went through.
1: It's different for everybody obviously. And mm. um, I, I didn't ask for any help, which was a mistake, but I got lucky because I got out of it. The way it worked for me is I needed a change of scenery. I came in Bali. Bali is obviously a very unique place where people uh, take much more care of themselves for their mental health, of their physical health and everything. And slowly I got out of it and comedy absolutely helped me uh, lips and bounds. So I have no idea and I'm in no position to say what other people should do. Mm -hmm. I honestly think I got lucky. And again, uh, before I would have blamed myself before because I got lucky and I would have re-entered depression and I'm just taking everything. Like now I'm unapologetic with the things I have. And I just take, like, I just, like my girlfriend, like she's the most amazed. i like, fuck it. I'll take it. I deserve it. My son, I deserve it. The fame I deserve. Now I take everything. And uh, I I accept it.
0: Mm. you accept everything that you're getting and so now you feel deserving of the things that you're attracting into your life whereas yeah. before you, you didn't yeah absolutely. Now, now you do
1: absolutely mm.
0: and so talk to me about the men's circle because you you mm. in Bali you joined the men's circle
1: mm-hmm. I didn't know I think you joined it for like a year or, or I, more I, I joined a it year? for a couple of years and then I was yeah. hosting it but then the yeah. comedy became too
0: yeah so what was that what was that experience like for, for you for someone who's never done the men's circle what is the men's circle you know
1: I come from a culture where if you're a man, you're not supposed to talk about your feelings. Mm. In Italy, we have the same, which is, if you have dirty clothes, you have to wash them in your own house, meaning you don't go around and tell your problems. Mm. there's only two ways where you can answer when people ask you, how are you? Good or great, that's it. <laughs> and everything that counts, you just push it down. Mm. And you press it, and you press it, and if you cannot press anymore, you drink. And if you cannot press anymore, you snort a line, and then you keep on fucking pushing. (laughs) The men's circle, the way it was structured, uh, the one I used to go, uh, was uh, there were a few rules, and every men's circle is different. There was no coaching, which is something I really liked. Uh, But it was like, no judgment, it was a no judgment zone, where you could share anything you wanted, you could share victories, you could share fears, you could share defeated, the defeat, the how do you say it? defeats. Name? Defeats. And you uh, realize, oh, shit, this problem that I thought it was just me, is actually really common. Mm. Or these challenges that these guys feel, I felt it a few years ago, I went through it. Yeah. We're not that sorry, we're not that unique. Yeah. And it's a good thing. Like, yeah. like, if you're ever in a problem, thousands of people went through it. And this actually release a little bit of pressure. And also, it's almost like when you have a problem you never share, it's almost like you're holding your breath. And then when you share, it's like, ah, oh, there's this liberation that you have.
0: Mm. So that that sounded like it was like
1: super healing for you. Absolutely, it was fantastic.
0: Yeah. But at the start though, what, what was the thing that got you like, Decided you what made you decide to join men's circle? Uh,
1: there was a point in Bali, and I'm still uh, in that point where I try to say yes to most things mm. and I keep open because that's how you have new opportunities. Because if I just say no to everything, then I cannot evolve. And sometimes you say yes and you're half-hearted and you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I don't really want to do it. But then you go there and you get value from it. And that's why now I'm like, you want to have a coffee? Let's have a coffee. You, you have this event if I'm not busy? Yeah, why not? It's funny you say that because
0: we live in Bali and there's a lot of coaches. This is like the land of the coaches, right? Oh, yeah. And one of the things that all the coaches talk about is boundaries, Saying the no. Opposite. There's there's <laughs> all these books on learning how to say no, and yeah, what you're
1: saying is say yes, mm. <laughs> like the Gene Carey movie, mm. Yes Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found out that because you never know. Like especially connection. Connection is the most important tool that we have. Uh, also as jobs goes, because you meet a person and uh, and you know the 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 law of the seven degrees. Yes, You can always, every time you say no to something and then then you adjust because for example, if you say yes, you go there, you have a bad experience, then next time you might say no, that I understand. Mm. But if you don't really know, you say yes and it might open up a world or you might meet the love of your life in that place Mm. or you you might meet your next boss or your next business partner, you never know. What's gonna happen? Yeah. So what, what
0: opportunities have been opened up since you started Bali Comedy Club for yourself? And
1: how, how has your life changed? Oh, my life has changed completely. And mm. uh, now I'm able to make a living by telling jokes? Mm. What? Yeah,
2: amazing.
1: That is, that is crazy.
2: Mm.
1: I mean, I'm a Comedy Central comedian. That is crazy. Now I'm on national television. Uh, we have uh, performed all over Bali, performing several underlines of Indonesia. And this was all all during the pandemic. When this shit, and eventually it's going to stop, like, I'm going to go around. Um, this year, I don't know if I'll be able to do it, but for sure I'll be in uh, Edinburgh for the Fringe, which is the second biggest comedy festival in the world. I already planned a tour of Southeast Asia. Like, it was fucking amazing. We are raising money to build a theater or a 400 people theater in the heart of Changu. is a million dollar project. I'm just blessed. Mm. And I met so many cool people. I met my best friend and uh, several of my best friend, I met them through comedy. Now, now comedy is such a huge part of my life that is actually weird to think about how was my life before comedy? Mm. And it's the same when I think about my girlfriend. How did I live without you? It's mm. the same thing. Mm. Comedy is my second, well, my first girlfriend.
0: <laughs> yeah, so a lot of crazy, amazing things happening
1: on the horizon. I met you. Yeah, yeah. So it's not <laughs> all good. Yeah, that, That's what I mean. That's why. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's it's, um, it's it's funny, like what you just said, Leila. You're cracking jokes as we're doing this, which uh, a lot of people, this isn't something I want to touch on is, a lot of people think comedians are hilarious when they're not on stage. But that is that's not true. No, no, no,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. But, but you
0: are you are funny when you're not on stage. <laughs>
1: um, it's not it's not necessarily funny. I'm um I'm teasing. I like to tease yeah, and I like okay, to play. Yeah, I'm yeah. playful. Yes, playful, yeah. That's the right word. Yeah, my, your English is better than
0: mine. <laughs> that's the right word to describe <laughs> it. <laughs>
1: But also, it depends who who am I in front. Because this is, there is this other concept that I really think is bullshit, which is you have to be uh, genuine to yourself. We are a different person with each person we interact with. Because when I talk to you, it's not the same way I talk to my girlfriend. It's not the same way I talk to a four-year-old. It's not the same way I talk to an eight-year-old. It's not the same way I talk to a dog. Mm. I'm this way with you because... Is, is a give and take of energy yeah. It's a transfer of energy, I feel comfortable enough, and etc, etc, etc. So I behave in a way that it might be described as playful and, and comfortable and mm. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But that's because of you. Because mm. you made me feel like I can crack these kind of jokes. And when I'm in some conversation, I'm completely serious. It just depends. And I'm still myself. Mm. It's just you know you ride the waves and uh, the energy that uh, the other people gives to you and the one that you give back to that person
2: mm.
0: yeah it's like a yeah it's like a dance right it's like give and take
1: oh absolutely yeah, yeah. that's a great metaphor yeah mm.
0: yeah so so the the men's circle would you recommend every man do that or is that just for you you got a lot of value out of it I would recommend
1: every man to try it okay
0: yeah at least once
1: at least at least a couple of times give it a couple of times yeah. Absolutely. Have you been?
0: No, I haven't been, but I feel like I have a men's circle with my group of friends that I have.
1: That's great. I never had that, for example. And that's why, for example, I feel that a men's circle is more beneficial than a woman's circle. Because women are much more advanced in that. Mm. They share between each other. Of course, I'm speaking in generality, but usually. Mm. And at least me, I never really share with anyone. Even with my wife, when I had the wife, she was asking me, how do you feel? And I was like, don't worry about it, I'm good. Cause I had to be the protector. I had to be the provider. I had to be strong.
0: Do you feel like Toko brings that out of you more? Does she encourage you to
1: share how you feel and stuff? Mm, no, it's that I am a different person. Mm. Cause uh, as amazing as she is, if I would have met her, uh, four years ago, five years ago, I would have been a different person. I wouldn't have been able to share even if she would have tried. Mm.
0: Yeah, so you've, you've done the work on yourself to
1: yeah. be able to attract yeah, her, that, that, her. That's the thing. Uh, nobody's ever going to do anything for you. You have to always do it for yourself. Of course, people are going to help you, but it's like with happiness. If you're looking in, uh, for happiness into someone else, you're looking in the wrong place. Mm. Yeah. And i would yeah. made that mistake countless times.
2: Mm.
0: When was the when was the time where you like really learned that lesson? What you just said, when, when was the time you are like all right, I need to start looking inwards now.
1: Now I I learned that lesson every single time and after a second I would forget it. Cuz after my wife I was like, "Oh, no, I have to happy happy myself and then I got this girlfriend here and it went even worse." And I was like, "No, I had to be his. Mm.
0: You're a voracious reader. Like on your Instagram, you post lots of books.
1: I read more than a book a week, yes. Wow. And how long have you been doing that for? Like a few years? Not, not a long, since I came to Bali. Before I, like before Bali, in the previous 10 years, I maybe read two books. And then uh, in three years in Bali, I read uh, uh, 80 books, uh, 70 books, uh, and 64 books, whatever. Hmm. So
0: clearly, you love reading, but what what, what is your philosophy on reading? Like,
1: because you're reading a book a week. So yes, so I read uh, four to five books at the same time. And I categorize them. I have a book about fiction, just to turn my mind off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a book that I call I have this folder that I call in So a book about spirituality or some kind of religion or whatever, I have books that I called out. So it's about uh, mentality or money or whatever. I have a book about comedy and I have now a book about fatherhood as well. And um, so you know of the Pomodoro technique. Yeah. I do something slightly different that works for me, which is I have very short intervals or like five, 10 minutes. I have activities that I consider work, activities that I consider fun. So I will watch a five minute to YouTube video and then I will read two chapters and then I'll be 10 minutes writing jokes and then I will play video games for five minutes and I go around and I circle them constantly because when I immediately start a new activity, my attention span is the highest. And then after f- five minutes, I go to another activity, so it keeps on being high the whole time.
0: Wow, so you just keep doing that every day. Yep. So how how long does that last for?
1: Sometimes the whole day. Damn. Yeah, and that's how I don't get tired because every five minutes is like a new stimulus. Mm. Ah, so that's like an energy hack also. Yeah, it works for me. I have yeah. no idea if it works for others. Maybe it's a good system.
0: Yeah, it is, yeah, that's pretty, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty rad. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how do you retain all this information then if you're reading new books all the time
1: uh, this is the thing I, I have this weird memory like I have no memory for events but my memory with books and stuff like this is is, is pretty amazing
0: mm. what's your favorite book top top five who was top five
1: ooh that's so difficult
2: ah <laughs> <sighs>
1: Uh, in no particular order. Yeah, anyway. Uh, Siddhartha. Yep. Great book. Uh, the Way of the Superior Man. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Very really good. Uh, Sapiens.
2: Mm-hmm. Huh.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Uh, hmm. The 40 Names of Love.
0: Oh, I haven't heard of that one.
1: is a Sufi book.
2: Oh.
1: It's a religious book. Okay. Uh, Sufis, like, uh, they're Muslim, but they're not really Muslim. It's almost like a Buddhist or Hinduist version of Muslim. Mm. Uh, it's about uh, uh, Rumi, which is their biggest uh, religious figure. Mm-hmm. And hmm, I don't know. Uh,
0: Anything com- comedy books?
1: Comedy? Oh, comedy books. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, Jimmy Carlas book. Jimmy Carls book. Yeah, Before the last I loved one. That. Before and it, Because it's almost like a motivational book <laughs> from the point of view of a comedian. Mm. But if you want to start comedy, probably the comedy Bible. Mm, yeah yeah that one's great that
0: one's really good actually one of my friends here um, his coach he did comedy back in the day in 1990s for 10 years nice and um, (laughs) yeah he he knows all the techniques and stuff of course he did it for 10 years and he he was on stage he said he was sharing stage with Dave and stuff oh wow a few times but he he hasn't got any tape of it Uh, (laughs) he's that guy Mm I'm like bro you ain't got nothing he's like no I did it for 10 years I got no tape I was like, okay, fair enough, but that nah, he's cool. We just joke about it now, but um, he was saying that yeah, that her, she was his coach. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, back in the day, and yeah, all the techniques. He as as you were telling your jokes, he was sitting next to me. He's like, oh, he's doing the,
1: the yeah. he's doing this one, <laughs> and that's the thing. There's so much technique going on. Yes. Like, there's literally algorithms. Mm. When you find a good joke, you can keep the same structure, you change the word, and it's still funny. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so h- how easy is it for people to write jokes? Do you think everyone can do it?
1: Or is it something that you're gifted with? Absolutely. It's like sports. Mm-hmm. There's people that are more naturally gifted and there are people that are less gifted. Let's say that uh, with basketball. Let's mm-hmm. say that you're more gifted than me. Yeah. If I play every day, and you play once every two years, I'm going to beat your ass. Yep.
0: yep. So so with, with with that said, everyone can... Because the limiting belief that a lot of people have, I mean, I had it before, this is why I started. I was mm-hmm. like, all right, I wanna I want to start understanding more about humor and mm-hmm. how, how it works, like studying it, right? And so my limiting belief was, I, I felt like in my life at this point, like, uh, like two years ago, three years ago now, I felt like I was just getting too serious in my life. I was becoming more serious. I was doing less fun things. And I was like, I actually need to add more fun into my life so, Humor is a great way to do that. So mm-hmm. let's study. But then the limiting belief was, I'm getting too serious. Maybe I'm not, maybe I can't write a joke because aren't you supposed to be funny all the time if you're a comedian? You know, There's those?
1: actually great comedians that are very serious on stage as well. Mm. Like the, the energy that Dave Chappelle brings is not the energy that Kevin Hart brings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's different levels. To be a good comedian, you have to be a good observer. That's what it is. And uh, the, the profession that I consider similar to the comedian is not the public speaker, is the magician, the stage magician, because mm. there's a lot of deceiving that goes on because you lead the audience in a way because then you want to make them turn. You show them one hand because you're doing something with the other hand. That's the same thing as with magic. The thing with comedy is this. Comedy is also deceiving in its nature because sometimes the first one or two sets are your best set for a while because you've been rehearsing them for years because those are, I don't know, the story about your name or where you come from or the, your party story that you would said a hundred times. So in a way, the first few times for somebody is easier because they feel very natural. They, they have rehearsed for years. But then when you're like, okay, now what? Now the, what do I talk about? Then it becomes challenging so many times for a comedian, the, it, it, it starts like here, and then you have a dip, and then you bring it back up. And in the dip, of course, it's very hard because you're like, shit, I was funny. I started as funny. So why am I not, am I not getting better?
0: <laughs> I feel like you're describing myself. <laughs> no. That's that's my reality. That's literally, I'm in that dip right now Well, I feel like it. Um, like I know I can write good stuff but yeah like you said because like, ha- I've told these funny stories for so many years to my friends now I just added some punchlines and I, I did it on stage I'm like yeah I'm fucking funny
1: <laughs> but you are yeah. but that's the thing you have to keep on trying
0: yeah yeah yeah. it's like anything right it's like consistency yep. and that's something I shared with you um, because you, you also host the Soma Fight Club their yes. fights
1: I'm a so fight announcer
0: you know, you're a fight announcer as well and uh, that, yeah that's that's interesting because <laughs> he obviously he's a comedian but he's not allowed to do any jokes there. <laughs> no,
1: actually, the first time it was funny because uh, Mike, the owner, told me, "I don't know what you're gonna do, but uh, the first three rows, I'm saying this for you: don't do any jokes, because those are gangsters and they will stab your <laughs> beach rats." And I was like, "All right, no jokes, gotcha."
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's like it's interesting to see, like, just being in that in that mode of just no, no, no jokes. Like we all know this guy as the joker, but he's not cracking any jokes. And he's like shouting at the
1: top of his
2: lungs.
1: (laughs) But also that's the thing, like you do jujitsu. Yeah. And it's like if comedy was like jujitsu. So you start with a white belt, but you're great at arm bars but you're only allowed to do the arm bursts a few times. And then you're like, okay, now we do leg locks and you yeah. know nothing about leg locks. Yeah. So at the beginning you feel so good because you're like, oh, I got this. And then it changes everything though. Yeah. So it's a bit weird in that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you're gonna be doing comedy for, what's next? Like what's, what's next for Chris?
1: So last week I was on national TV. They, yeah. the, the show went great actually, I was such an idiot. Um, because after the show that was shown, it was the first time that, uh, they had a show in English. I was headline went great. And, uh, the, the, some news outlet came to interview me and they asked me about my special. I was like, yeah, in Bali, I'm the man. And they put that as a headline and it was, I sounded like a fucking jackass. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, compass TV was very impressed. Uh, so in the next few days we have to talk and, uh, Hopefully there's gonna be the opportunity to do several TV shows with them.
2: Wow.
1: Then uh, the next big thing, I'm gonna do the Ginkom Fest, which is the biggest Jakarta festival. Uh, I'm supposed to perform in front of 4,000 people, something hey. like that. Uh, there is obviously the Fringe in Scotland. Yeah. And then uh, depending on the quarantine situation, I have planned also a tour of Southeast Asia that is gonna be, uh, Kuala Lumpur, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Bangkok, Hanoi, Singapore, etc., cetera. Et cetera. Mm. Okay, wow! So you got a lot planned, a lot on your plate, and I'm becoming a father in five weeks.
0: Yeah, congratulations again. No, I'm so happy.
1: Yeah, the 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 best thing is that because I whatever you want to call it, Bali famous or whatever. But Bali is also a very tight community. So yes, I'm famous, but everyone also know me on a personal basis. This kid is already so much love and everyone is so excited about it. Mm. That is is incredible. Yeah. He's got a lot of love around him, that's oh, for yeah. sure. More than most kids. Yes. And for example, uh, my girlfriend had that more because they have tight communities there. Mm. But I never even knew my neighbors. Like, I never had that kind of community Mm. and it's so amazing. Mm.
0: I got a few, I got a few last questions here. Yes, please wrap it up. So what is the purpose of life to you? I always like to ask my guests this question.
1: The purpose of life is my son and my girlfriend, Mm. making sure they are as happy as possible. And in order to make sure that they are as happy as possible, I have to first make myself as happy as possible. Mm. And how do you do that for you? I Mm. do that by allowing myself to be me accepting my flaws, accepting my fuck ups, working hard, and just taking everything I can
0: mm. and owning it right
1: and owning it yeah, yeah. absolutely owning it is, is a huge component absolutely
0: mm. absolutely yeah so I mean one of, the, one of the last questions I have for you is what what? Uh, <laughs> I always like to ask this question because it's a, such a fascinating question to ask people what would you want people to say about you at your funeral or would you even care of course I care. My
1: comedian. He <laughs> <laughs> was the funniest <laughs> motherfucker ever. Um, I want them. What I don't want is for them to say that they didn't tell me anything. No matter if it's good or bad, I want to know what they really thought about me. So uh, I don't want nobody to have resentment towards me if we didn't work it out. And I obviously don't want anyone to love me without telling me they love me. So what I want is, uh, I want people to say, he was the best father, he was the best husband, he was the best fucking comedian.
0: <laughs> that's awesome well on that note man let's, let's, let's end it there and uh, man it's been a, been a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you more it's always a pleasure talking a to lot, you there's a lot of things I would want to add to this but I feel like we covered a lot you know and yeah. people are going to get a lot of value out of this but
1: mm, let's talk more also privately. you're a great dude yeah appreciate it thanks boom
0: alright talk to you soon